lecturer today is uh, Peter S. Williams. He is a philosopher. He is a quite a prolific author. He is authored several books. Have been been engaged in, in several others. He is a, a part of the the faculty of communications and and, and worldviews um, uh, at NLA University College, and has been so for for quite a few years. Uh, he's also um, contributing to our um, uh, academic journal, Theophilos. Find it on theophilos.no, uh, where there are articles and material in both uh, Scandinavian languages and also in English. Now, uh, Peter S. Williams, he is uh, uh, in many ways a, a specialist on Dawkins and the New Atheism. You've written several books, and many of them uh, focus on new atheism, or at least touch on them. Um, and your latest book, uh, uh, Peter, uh, was a response book to uh, the the youth version of, of Richard Dawkins' God Delusion. So uh, you might uh, mention that during your uh, lecture. Uh, now we, we uh, look forward to uh, listening to your lecture on Richard Dawkins versus the case for God, a critical guide. You're welcome. Friend, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, so I'm assuming you've joined because you know a little bit about Richard Dawkins, uh, but maybe I'll fill out some background here. Um, Professor Dawkins is a fellow of the Royal Society, um, Institute of Scientists in the UK and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, uh, indeed, as well. He's a good writer. Uh, he's one of the so-called new or neo-atheists. Um, he's a zoologist by training and uh, is an, an emeritus fellow of New College Oxford. And he was the University of Oxford's first professor for public understanding of science uh, between 1995 and 2008. But he first came to prominence through his popular science books for the general public, such as uh, The Blind Watchmaker in 1986 and uh, Climbing Mount Improbable in 1996. Um, but as the years went on, his uh, atheism, indeed, I think we could describe it as anti-theism, um, came more to the fore in his uh, writing and television appearances and so on. And uh, with the, the best-selling uh, book, The God Delusion, uh, that sold over three million copies since it was published first in 2006 and there was also a, a 10th anniversary edition in uh, 2016 uh, and uh, recently in 2019 he published a book uh, dealing with very similar themes or not identical themes and aimed at a younger audience of sort of uh, older teenagers uh, I would say uh, called Outgrowing God uh, Beginner's Guide to Atheism uh, and as Pion very kindly mentioned, uh, I recently published a book called Outgrowing God? Question mark, uh, a Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate, uh, which is a direct response to Dawkins' book uh, and follows uh, the form of following a narrative about a group of students uh, in a book club reading Dawkins' book. And that allows me to, to write this book in, in a dialogue form uh, with different characters representing different viewpoints uh, engaging with Dawkins' ideas. So let me first start off by mentioning that there is a far broader range of 
theistic arguments of arguments for God than, than most people realise, uh, including Richard Dawkins. Um, the American Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga once presented a famous paper in which he outlined what he called a couple of dozen or so theistic arguments, um, a paper that was recently turned into an academic conference and then a book of conference proceedings, uh, which you, you might like to look into if you want to delve into some high-level philosophy. Uh, in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, Dawkins devotes just 37 pages uh, to looking at the issue of the arguments for God and uh, to rejecting uh, 10 theistic arguments that he, he looks at. Um, so even if his critique of those 10 theistic arguments were correct, um, which they're not, uh, then he would not have refuted the case for God because there's a, a lot more arguments out there that he, he simply doesn't uh, deal with. Uh, for example, of, of nine theistic arguments in the, the, the monumental uh, Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, um, only five of the arguments, of those nine arguments that appear in that book, are dealt with by Dawkins uh, in The God Delusion. So let's start by a little look at what we can call the, the organic version of the design argument. This is a, an argument that, that Dawkins takes very seriously uh, and it's kind of at the forefront of his thinking because it's, um, he says, when he first found out about the Darwinian explanation for the apparent design of life um, that he gave up on the last vestiges of his uh, childhood belief in God. We need to think here about issues about assigning the burden of proof uh, with what uh, British philosopher Richard Swinburne calls the, the principle of credulity, that is the, the principle of when to trust. Uh, and Swinburne outlines that it's, it's a basic principle of knowledge, which he calls the, the principle of credulity, that we, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be to us until we have sufficient evidence that we're mistaken. And Swin, uh, Swinburne points out that if we, if we didn't do this, if we were doing, doing the reverse, we, we'd say we'd never believe anything until we have sufficient evidence that we're right. But then, of course, we'd never believe that that evidence that we're right uh, really was real evidence and really showed that we were right, unless we had evidence for that. And so on and so on and so on. And we'd, we'd have this sort of infinite demand for evidence that we could never satisfy. So you have to start arguing from somewhere uh, in order to argue to anywhere. And Swinburne says the place to start is with things that, that seem to us to be true and we believe those things until and unless we've got reason to think we're mistaken. In other words, we could boil this down to the principle that you know if it looks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Until someone gives us sufficient reason to think that we're, we're mistaken. Well, Richard Dawkins himself in The Blind Watchmaker uh, said that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So we, we have here a sort of intuitive design argument, a very intuitive design argument, where we say you know, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we've got evidence that we're mistaken. Uh, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Uh, from which we can draw the conclusion that therefore we we ought to believe that biology is the study of things that were designed for a purpose until we have sufficient evidence that we're mistaken. 
uh, and of course Dawkins thinks that we do have sufficient evidence to think that we're mistaken about that and he spends a lot of time in his writings discussing this. I also want to bring in an issue about what's called specified complexity and this notion of specified complexity. Dawkins himself talks about this in a number of places. Uh, in The God Delusion he says that you and I and every other living creature are machines of ineffable complexity but it's not just complexity or, or unlikeliness. He says, ineffable complexity, complexity of a magnitude to challenge our credulity, and he defines what he means here. Complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction. So it's not just improbability. Improbability in a non-random direction, i.e. the direction of that seems designed for a purpose. So complexity of achieving a purpose. Uh, Dawkins acknowledges uh, that specified complexity is a plausible indicator of design. Um, so in an article in uh, Free Inquiry magazine, uh, Dawkins wrote that specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that, you know, in the unique disposition of its parts, uh, a pile of detached watch parts, as we have in one of the pictures here, uh, tossed around in a box, that's any of those sort of arrangements of bits of watch tossed around in a box would be um, as improbable, i.e. complex, as a, a fully functioning, genuinely complicated, as he calls it, watch. And he says what is specified about a watch in the other picture is that it is improbable in the spe specific direction of telling the time. So it's not just that you've got a complicated arrangement of parts, any old arrangement of watch parts would be complicated, but when you have a complicated arrangement of parts that achieves this function, that hits this, this sort of independent pattern, um, a pattern you haven't just read off the existence of the parts themselves, well then that is, in our experience, on our uniform experience, a reliable indicator of design. Or, to pick another example from Dawkins' own works, in The Blind Watchmaker he talks about coming across, the example of coming across an unlocked safe with a combination lock on it. And he says, look, you know, of all the equally improbable positions of the combination lock, that's complexity, only one opens the lock specification. So you have to put in uh, a series of numbers of a certain length um, to open the safe. But not any series of numbers of that length will open the safe. Now any series of numbers of that particular length will be just as unlikely to happen by chance as any other in a sense. You know they're all one possible combination of those numbers of that length out of all of the possible combinations of numbers of that length. But only one is specified as achieving this this goal of being uh, opening the safe. And when we come across an open safe, uh, we should reckon that, you know, somebody knew the combination is a much better explanation than someone got lucky. So again, that's a sort of um, tongue-in-cheek. So this is Dawkins's design argument um, premise. Specify complexity as a reliable indicator of, of design. Uh, second premise, uh, nature contains specified complexity. Um, well, if those are both true, if those are both true, 
again it follows that nature contains a reliable indicator of design and actually Dawkins seems to affirm both premises of this logically valid argument but of course he disagrees with the conclusion and we'll come on to why well Darwinism or specifically neo-Darwinism has quite a lot to do with it uh, Dawkins says the complexity i.e the specified complexity of living bodies in need of every one of its trillion cells is so mind-shattering to anyone who truly grasps it. Uh, it talks about the, the temptation to buckle at the knees and succumb to a non-explanation, as he thinks of it, is almost overwhelming. But, he says, humanity's best estimate of the probability, the complexity of divine creation, uh, dropped steeply in 1859 uh, when The Origin of Species was published. Uh, and it has declined steadily during the subsequent decades as evolution consolidated itself from a, a plausible theory in the 19th century to established fact today. Uh, well, here I have to raise the caveat that, that evolution actually means many things. It can be defined in many separate ways or as containing many separate claims. Uh, and it's possible to believe some of the claims that go under the label of evolution uh, without believing all of them. You can believe all of them, you can believe uh, none of them, you can believe some of them. Uh, and one has to ask uh, what are the specific claims and uh, what you think of each one. Indeed, uh, one can accept and reject evolution in different uh, senses. Um, you could accept all, all the, the points labelled here in, in green about the earth being ancient and, and life having changed over time and common ancestry and even universal common ancestry. Uh, none of that means you necessarily have to believe um, the blind watchmaker hypothesis that, that the pattern of life forms related via common ancestry is the result of an unguided and unplanned process of random variation and natural selection or um, the naturalistic origins hypothesis that life arose from non-life by virtue of an unguided unplanned process and so on. Indeed Charles Darwin's own theory of evolution by natural selection uh, only embraced the hypotheses here in green uh, and not the ones uh, in black. Dawkins says it's Darwin who patiently tells us exactly how the trick of life works. This appearance of design is, is a trick uh, and the the, the uh, key to solving the puzzle, as it were, to seeing through the trick, is cumulative natural selection. In The Origin of Species, uh, I think we see Darwin reversing the, the proper burden of proof concerning design uh, to award the presumption of truth to his bold but, but risky extrapolation from observed uh, microevolution to macroevolution, to saying evolution can do, can do these little things that we can observe maybe, it, let's assume it can do lots, it can do everything uh, over enough time. That extrapolation depended crucially upon an unwarranted shift between saying that he saw no barrier to the extrapolation and saying there was, in fact, no barrier. And that shift constitutes an argument from ignorance. So here's a quote from The Origin of Species. Uh, you know, if we have under nature variability, and a powerful agent, natural selection, as you would call it, uh, always ready to act and to select. Why should we doubt that variation in any way useful to beings would be preserved, accumulated and inherited? What limit can be put on this power acting during long ages, favouring the, the good, what works, and rejecting the bad, what doesn't work? I can see no limit to this power, 
in slowly and beautifully adapting each form but then of course he, he jumps to the conclusion that there is no limit and uh, awards his theory the uh, assumption of truth and puts the the burden of, of proof on the, on the skeptic I think that reverses the burden of proof established by the appearance of design um, that even Dawkins himself acknowledges. So Dawkins talks about uh, Mount Improbable in his, his book Mount, you know, Climbing Mount Improbable as this analogy for um, the complexity of life and getting it uh, by not jumping from you know no life to uh, getting all the complexity we see around us in one step but breaking it down into little gradual steps over time at a gradual route to the top of Mount Improbable around the back. Um, so hence the analogy of climbing Mount Improbable. He says, however daunting the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled by this cumulative process of selection. Well, question, how does Dawkins know that these graded ramps can be found without actually finding them? Because he says, without staring from our chair, we can see that it must be so because nothing except gradual accumulation could in principle do the job. Really? What job? The job of explaining life without mentioning design. It's obvious that gradual accumulation, natural selection, is not the only possible explanation, which therefore must be true, because Dawkins is arguing for the blind watchmaker thesis as an alternative better explanation than design. So what's going on here is actually Dawkins is begging the question in favour of macroevolution and against design. He says uh, in one uh, quote from a, a YouTube video, uh, there cannot have been intermediate stages that were not beneficial in the, the, this graded route. Uh, there's got to be a series of advantages all the way. If you can't think of one, that's your problem, not natural selection's problem. Natural selection, well, you know, I suppose that's a thought of matter of faith on my part, since the theory is so coherent and powerful. But as uh, atheists like uh, Jerry Fodor and uh, Massimo Piatelli Palomini here say um, in their book What Darwin Got Wrong, uh, they say we don't know what the mechanism of evolution is. As far as we can make out, nobody knows exactly how phenotypes evolve. Um, I think that Dawkins' appeal to neo-Darwinism to explain how phenotypes evolve also is actually a, a red herring. Now, this is a, an interesting English phrase that philosophers use to describe a, a particular fallacy of thinking. Let me explain it, what a red herring is. A, a red herring is, well, a, a herring cured in by salting and slow smoking uh, to a dark brown colour. Um, but it's also uh, used because um, there was a practice of drawing a, a red herring across a trail to confuse hunting dogs so that it would go after the red herring rather than you know, the fox that they were hunting or so on in order to save the fox from the hunters. Uh, it's something that distracts our attention from the real issue. So I think this appeal to Darwinism, um, whatever you make of it, uh, is actually something of a distraction from the real issue because, for example, concerning the origin of life able to undergo evolution, Dawkins' appeal to natural selection is a completely irrelevant distraction. 
Um, as the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Montan says, uh, Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even purport, even try to explain how life came to arise in the first place. Uh, atheist Thomas Nagel, again in his uh, book Mind and Cosmos, argues he thinks that the origin of life remains a mystery, an, an event to which no significant probability can be assigned on the basis of what we know of the laws of physics and chemistry. Um, so, you know, even if uh, you think neo-Darwinism is a, a completely sufficient explanation for what it purports to explain, um, it doesn't get us out of the issue of design of life because where did life itself come from? And indeed, for life to exist, we have to exist in a, a, a finely tuned universe that is such that life can exist. Uh, and such a universe turns out to be finely tuned, as cosmologists have discovered in the last few decades. So Dawkins himself says um, the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which peacocks and humans and so on come into existence. Uh, Fine-tuned, uh, that's complexity, in such a way as to, that's specification, be life permitting. Um, we've got complexity and specification and that would seem to indicate design. Now against this, Dawkins will appeal to the so-called multiverse hypothesis. I won't say very much about this now. We talked with the students about this quite a lot earlier today. Uh, but Dawkins appeals to the multiverse saying, you know, there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. Of course, we could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happen to be propitious to our evolution, happen to allow our evolution. Um, a lot could be said about this, but here I'll just simply note that scientific appeals to a multiverse are, are question-begging themselves, because they assume the existence of a finely-tuned universe-generating mechanism. As the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis writes in his book uh, The Goldilocks Enigma, um, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. It, there has to be a turns out to be finely tuned, universe-generating mechanism. The multiverse theory therefore cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. When it comes down to it, the kind of the key plank in Dawkins' attempt to get around this design issue, uh, particularly in uh, the God Delusion book, is a, a philosophical, a metaphysical uh, argument against design. And here's his first attempt to defend this philosophical rejection of design. He says, if you're trying to explain something improbable, like life or the universe is fine-tuning, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never satisfy to invoke an entity that is, in itself, at least as improbable as the thing you're trying to explain. In other words, you're trying to explain A, you can't explain A by appealing to B if B is more complicated, more improbable than A. Question. Do we make any explanatory advance in our understanding if we explain this complex self-portrait in terms of the yet more complex existence of Edvard Munch? Uh, seems to me that we do. 
Um, so this rule of explanation that uh, Dawkins appeals to just seems to be obviously wrong. Uh, indeed, the American philosopher William Lane Craig says that in order for an explanation to be the best explanation, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Uh, such a requirement would generate an infinite regress, so that everything becomes inexplicable. Uh, Dawkins thinks that he's arguing that we should reject explanations more complex than the data they explain. But note this, uh, Dawkins is more complex than the words he uses to make this argument. Um, so by his own rule of explanation, he, and we, uh, shouldn't believe that he is arguing for his rule of explanation. Or arguing against the fine-tuning argument. Um, but that's self-contradictory. Here's a, a second way in which Dawkins tries to metaphysically rebut uh, the design inference. He says the designer himself in order to be capable of designing would have to be another complex, i.e. unlikely, entity of the kind that, in his turn, needs the same kind of explanation. Uh, you'd be getting into an infinite regress is, of, of designers of designers of designers, thinks Dawkins, and infinite regresses are to be avoided, which I would agree with him about. He says, critics of my book tried to deny that a god capable of designing something complex must himself be complex. Uh, well, why think god must be complex rather than simple, say? Well, Dawkins points out that god has to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of the physical constants that would find you in the universe. You call that simple? God has uh, enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and praises of billions of people simultaneously. You know, the one thing he cannot be, if he's to match even minimally to his job description, is simple. Well, take this uh, reply from the agnostic philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny, who, in conversation with Dawkins, distinguished what he called complexity of structure from what he called complexity of function. And he gave a nice illustration of this distinction. He said, look, the, the electric razor basically only be used to cut a beard. But the cutthroat razor uh, might also be used to cut a throat, etc. Or open your mail with, um, and so on. Of course, the cutthroat razor is a lot more simple in its structure than the electric razor. Uh, but the simpler object can nonetheless do more things. It has more complexity of function. It can achieve more results than the very complex electric razor. So, the point here that Kenny is making is that an argument demonstrating a complexity of function doesn't thereby necessarily demonstrate the existence of a complexity of structure. But of course, what Dawkins uh, needs to show is that God, if he were to exist, would have a complexity of structure, not merely a complexity of function. But all his argument shows is a complexity of function, not a complexity of structure. Uh, Dawkins' only reply to Kenny was, I really don't see what you're saying. 
Well, none of Dawkins' observations is an argument showing that to fulfil his job description, God must be complex and not simple in the relevant technical senses. Uh, Dawkins, in other words, equivocates, is ambiguous between the terms, the, the meaning of the terms complex and simple, uh, and he equivocates in order to beg the question against God being a, a simple or necessary being. Um, he's just assuming that God would exhibit a complexity that points to an external explanation, uh, a, a complex contingent unlikely arrangement of parts because remember that's what points us to design this unlikely contingent arrangement of parts that happens to hit an independent pattern well even if even if one were to argue that god would contain some complexity that wouldn't show that god himself required an explanation i god may may have an essential nature that exists necessarily uh, and which explains any complexity it contains. Um, that is, uh, Dawkins is here equivocating between what we might call the mind of God and the contents of the mind of God. You know, there might be, maybe, specified complexity within the mind of God. And yes, that would require an explanation, but you can't say that gets us into an infinite regress without begging the question against saying, and the explanation of that specified complexity in the mind of God is the mind of God, <laughs> which is a, a necessarily existent uh, metaphysical reality. So as William Lane Craig comments, uh, Dawkins has evidently confused a mind's ideas, which may indeed be complex, with a mind itself, which is an incredible, incredibly simple uh, entity. Interacting with Dawkins on this issue of design ends up in the end, I think, being a little bit analogous to, to listening to a conversation that might go a little bit like this. Uh, question. Uh, don't you think that the existence of this music suggests the existence of a composer? Answer. No. A, a composer would have a mind containing the music and probably other music and, and even many random arrangements of notes too. The composer explanation is just too complex. Maybe so many arrangements of notes exist somewhere that I can't show you um, that we shouldn't be surprised to have chanced upon one that's musical. Yeah, question in response. But, but wouldn't lots of music in a mind just be more evidence for a mind? And don't even random strings of notes need an explanation for their existence? And so the conversation might go on. Let's turn to a different argument, the, the mathematical moral argument, uh, and then we'll close. Dawkins says there's also the moral version of what he calls the God temptation. Um, a moral argument might be put something like this. Um, premise, if, if objective moral values uh, were to exist, then it would seem a good explanation that God exists. And, and by objective moral values here, we mean objective in the sense of the kind of things that we discover rather than invent, that don't depend upon us. Uh, premise two, if you could say 
that objective moral values do exist, well, then it would follow that therefore uh, a god exists. Because when you think about it, what would an objective moral fact or an objective moral value be? Uh, we seem to be talking about a realm of sort of the morally ideal. An ideal seems to imply intentionality, something that prescribes or commands our behaviour. It's not something that's merely descriptive and it's something that ob obligates our behaviour. We're obligated to behave and not to behave in certain ways by moral facts. But an intentional idea or, or character seems to require a mind, and a prescription or a command requires a prescriber or a commander, and obligation seems to require someone to whom one is rightfully obligated. So Objective moral facts seem to point to a personal reality that grounds their their existence. So here's Dawkins on the moral argument. He says, without God, it is said, where's the inducement to be good? What are the sanctions against bad behaviour? And he complains about basing moral decisions on the, the fear that our every move is being watched, so we need to suck it up to an obsessively vigilant God who's inexhaustibly interested in what goes on in our beds. I think Dawkins here is just misinformed about the, the inner dynamics of Christian ethics. And again, this, this is all another red herring. It's all irrelevant. It doesn't address the argument that we just laid out. Um, Dawkins says, how do we even know what is good and what's bad? The temptation here is to abdicate the responsibility to think about morality and, and just take the lazy route of slavishly following an ancient book of rules, rules invented by fallible men, so he assumes. Uh, again, this is another uh, irrelevant red herring. Uh, the meta-ethical moral argument isn't about explaining how we know what's good and bad. It's about explaining how good, how come good and bad are objective realities that exist to be known, however we know them. Indeed, the Bible, uh, St Paul in the letter to Romans, uh, says that when Gentiles, when non-Jews, who don't have the law in the Old Testament scriptures, when they do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves. Um, since they show that the requirements of the law, the moral law, are written on their hearts. So the official biblical position is that you don't need to know anything about the Bible in order to know about right and wrong. Um, but that's not the issue here anyway. So actually, when it comes down to it, in the face of the moral argument, what Dawkins really does is to deny the truth of premise two. Here is a fascinating quote from Dawkins where he says that there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, uh, factual matters in the broad sense, matters that he would give the power of, of deciding to science to tell us about. That's on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, he says, there are ideas about what we ought to do, uh, normative or moral ideas, for which the words true and false have no meaning. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. 
But Dawkins also says that Hitler and Stalin were, by any standards, spectacularly evil men. Well, not, not by their own standards. What do you mean by objectively true standards of morality? Well, no, because terms about what's good and bad, normative terms, don't have any meaning. Um, so, literally, Dawkins tells us that he doesn't mean what he says here. Um, nor does he mean um, what he says when he says that faith is an evil, uh, precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. Um, and I hope the existence of <laughs> this uh, lecture itself shows that um, faith uh, does brook argument, uh, indeed invites it. But um, beside the point, uh, Dawkins is wanting to criticise faith, religious faith, as an evil thing. Uh, on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, he also tells us that he thinks that moral terms have no meaning. Um, so despite rejecting the objective existence of moral values, Dawkins is constantly criticising the evils of religion, thereby contradicting himself. So in conclusion, Dawkins doesn't address many theistic arguments. But the ones he does address, I think he addresses poorly. Uh, he follows Darwin in making an argument from ignorance in the face of the organic design argument. Um, but actually his response to the organic design argument is an irrelevant red herring. Um, his response to the fine-tuning design argument is, is question-begging. Uh, his argument against um, complex explanations is self-contradictory obviously wrong for other reasons. Um, he equivocates between complexity of function and structure in arguing against the appeal to God to explain cosmic design. Uh, equivocates between a mind and the ideas in a mind. He begs the question, again, uh, against God being a necessary being. Uh, Dawkins' response to the, the meta-ethical moral argument um, is full of irrelevant red herrings again, uh, talking off issue, and his rejection of objective moral values actually seems to contradict his own critique of the evils of religion, um, many of which I would actually want to say that there actually are um, evils of religion or certainly evils of religious people. Um, but if there are evils of religious people, that means there are evils, uh, and we are back to facing the moral argument. Uh, which is to say that his critique of the evils of religion contradicts his critique of the moral argument, and he can't have it both ways. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Pete. Um, this was uh, very helpful uh, and a lot of material. And you know, of course, uh, you know Richard Dawkins very well by interacting with his material on many, many, many occasions. And we, you, you showed, you showed us some of, some of this, and given your uh, an incisive critique. Now there are some helpful questions here coming up, um, and. Uh, 
I encourage people to to add on their their questions as well. Just just a um, um, couple of questions from the from from the start. Um, uh, Richard Dawkins is an immensely popular figure, and why is that? How come Richard Dawkins has become so popular? Maybe especially by people who think they're intellectual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in Dawkins is certainly a bright guy. I mean, you don't get to be an emeritus professor at Oxford University for nothing, right? And he carries the, the sort of cachet of being a scientist and, and being a scientist who's worked at Oxford. Um, and he is known to the public through writing very well-selling um, popular science books and making media appearances. He he writes well, he's got a good turn of phrase, and he communicates well in, in person as well. Um, so um, the media like having him on um, on news programmes or to, to host science programmes and, and so on. He's done a lot of that over the years. Uh, so he's been given a platform by the media uh, because of his eloquence, because of the cachet of his job and his background. Um, but unfortunately, when he's talking about issues in the philosophy of religion or, or, or theology, he is talking outside of his professional expertise and he unfortunately doesn't seem to put a lot of effort into uh, learning that expertise in an extracurricular uh, manner either. Um, so he regularly makes these kind of mistakes uh, in reasoning, um, fallacies of, of reasoning um, that one would hope that you know undergraduate philosophy students who've actually attended their lectures and paid attention uh, would be able to, to note like oh he's begging the question there or he's contradicting himself or what have you but um, Dawkins doesn't and not everybody has that background training and so you know, people don't notice and sort of take him at his word um, because of his credentials. But uh, uh, Richard Dawkins is not very popular among all atheists. He's been under quite sharp criticism of some some really uh, strong and intellectual atheists. Could you, could you mention some of, some of those critiques? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, not all atheists are, are new atheists. Atheists take different approaches to many different issues, just like Christians take different approaches to, to many different issues, although we have things in common as, as well. Um, so there, there are atheists um, who feel embarrassed by Richard Dawkins and thinks Richard Dawkins is the kind of atheist who gives atheism a bad name or, or find some of his uh, comments on Twitter and Dawkins has gained a bit of a reputation for saying controversial things on Twitter. Um, uh, no, we don't need to go into particular examples of whether we agree or disagree with this or that example but uh, he's certainly a controversial outspoken figure. Uh, and being outspoken can be controversial um, and and so yeah he, he doesn't represent you know all atheists or how all atheists think about things um, and I wouldn't want to uh, you know paint atheists all with the same brush as it were but he his ideas do need engagement because as you say he is a very popular 
representative and a very influential representative of atheism. His you know, media appearances, his books sell a lot. So a lot of people are being influenced by this type of atheism uh, and so it needs uh, addressing in the public square. So you mentioned one uh, famous atheist which is which gives a, 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 a critique. Mm. Yeah, um, so... Um, Thomas Nagel, you uh, mentioned. Thomas Thomas Nagel, uh, that, I, that I mentioned, is an atheist who, who would be critical. Michael uh, Roos. Yeah. Michael Roos is a philosopher of, of science mm -hmm. who's an agnostic, skeptic philosopher in the States who's very critical of Dawkins. Um, Eagleton. Uh, yeah, uh, Terry Eagleton, um, atheist philosopher called uh, Eric Weilenberg. Uh, published a philosophy paper critiquing the central argument by Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, mm -hmm. saying it, it was uh, not an impressive argument. Um, one could go on, yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's, it's interesting that he's quite heavily critiqued in academia, so uh, yeah. people will distance them, themselves from him if, if you're an academic. Yeah. Um, a little bit like popular Christian preachers who are not kind of right. really... Uh, popular, credible in in the academic uh, culture, mm. uh, but uh, um, he's been he's he's got a lot of, of critiques and, and and questions and challenges to some of his, his arguments. Uh, would you say that he has changed any of his kind of basic views or perspectives since the God Illusion? Uh, in his latest latest book, uh, Outgrowing God. No, no, I don't think so. Outgrowing God, God is very much a sort of take two of the God Delusion, written for a younger audience. It, it covers a, a slightly different range of issues, but it'll all be v sort of a familiar genre to you if you've read the God Delusion. Um, so he he criticizes um, the morality of various biblical stories and characters. He's mm -hmm. critical of the, the search for the historical Jesus. Um, he's, he's skeptical about the possibility of miracles. He uh, argues against, you know, there are no good arguments for God and tends to make these kind of logical fallacies uh, and misunderstandings even of what the arguments are that he, that he critiques. So he tends to talk off topic, um, mm -hmm. etc. Et yeah. We had another very interesting question here in the in the um, in the in the Q and A, um, and you you'd probably know this. Uh, it's kind of a, a personal question about Dawkins. Are there any personal reasons that uh, that you know of uh, why Dawkins is so critical um, towards the Christian faith? Hmm. I think this is a, a, a tricky question because I, I don't know him personally. I, I know him through his writings and I, I think it's in, important in um, academic conversation and in apologetics to to critique people's arguments rather than the people themselves. One would risk falling into what's called the, the ad hominem, the against the person fallacy of, of arguing against a person rather than against a person's views. Um, the whether or not his arguments are, are good arguments is a, a separate issue from whether or not he has good or bad motives for putting forward mm -hmm. those arguments for example um, and just as you wouldn't want atheists to criticize uh, a Christian apologist by critiquing the person rather than their, their arguments mm -hmm. you know 
the apologist may turn out to be a hypocrite um, which is terrible and, and sad and to be lamented but that doesn't mean that the arguments that they made were necessarily bad arguments mm. um, you know, th those same arguments could be made by an apologist uh, with high integrity of character <laughs> just as well mm. uh, so I tend to, to try and just focus uh, on, on the arguments and leave issues of you know why the broader issues of, of why someone holds an, op an opinion, well, we can leave that mm -hmm. for the psychologists and uh, uh, the sociologists and uh, uh, mm -hmm. and so on. So, so, uh, but, but you know, what, one thing is the content of the argument, the other one is the kind of the hostility in the style. Um, do you have any comments on that it could this could be a cultural yeah. thing a personal thing or, or um because he, he's very confrontative and, and hostile he is combative i mean he, he calls on people to to ridicule religion mm. and religious people but this is a sort of deliberate tactic he, he says being being respectful gives the false idea uh, that what you're critiquing uh, has some legitimacy to it because you're being respectful of it whereas if you just you know just laugh them out of court don't treat them seriously because they they don't deserve it um and i think this kind of approach backfires on, on him really because because he doesn't take theology or philosophy seriously he, he doesn't uh learn about it sufficiently to accurately engage with it <laughs> And then he ends up talking off topic or, or making simple uh, mistakes of reasoning uh, in engaging with it, and that undermines his, you know, credibility uh, uh, of what it, of what the credibility of what he's saying. Um, wh whereas, of course, as we said, you know, there are other atheists who would, on the one hand, critique Dawkins's arguments and perhaps his style. Uh, and would have a, a different style and may, uh, you know, as they would think, have better arguments uh, again just as you, you know you can't dismiss the case for God by reading what Richard Dawkins has to say about a very small subset of them neither can you dismiss atheism by saying oh Richard Dawkins doesn't make good arguments for atheism or against belief in God you know therefore uh, no one should be an atheist you know it, it, it's never as straightforward and simple as that is it <laughs> so what uh, what are your favorite arguments for the existence of God or or uh, maybe what would um, might be slightly difficult what uh, a di different question what arguments for the existence of God do you find that people uh, most mostly resonate with today gosh yeah I, I, I think this is uh, varies from person to person I think there are a very wide range of, of arguments for God. I, I mentioned the uh, you know, two dozen or so arguments book, and I think there may be more arguments than that. Mm -hmm. There are lots of connections between God and the reality around us that we can un unearth. And people can often appreciate those connections at an intuitive level, but then you can cash them out at a sort of philosophical level. Um, and different people will be interested or sort of their imaginations caught by different aspects of that overall case. It's really the, the overall accumulation of arguments that has the most powerful effect. But if you want to focus on individual arguments or types of arguments, 
you know, someone who's really interested in the sciences may indeed be more caught up with, more impressed by, engaged with arguments that have premises that have to do with science, like the, the Big Bang or the fine-tuning of the universe or the, the information content of DNA or all sorts of areas. Um, but that may leave other people cold. Um, but they may be engaged by things like the moral argument that we discussed about, or you know, C.S. Lewis's versions of the the argument from from desire. Um, do we have inbuilt desires that point beyond this reality and point to the the existence of God as uh, the necessary condition of the fulfilment of these these desires for transcendence? Um, what about our experience of of, of beauty? in the world what what is beauty is that something that's objective and that points to god you know maybe some someone who's really interested in arts might be more interested in those kind of arguments um from sort of existential concerns and from beauty and and so on than arguments to do with cosmic fine-tuning so i think it's finding what will connect with people most and to focus there mm -hmm. Yes, and of course you also have the uh, the issue of, of of the story of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Right. Uh, you've yeah. written all that as well. Yeah, yeah. I have indeed. Uh, mm -hmm. I wrote a book called uh, "Getting at Jesus," uh, mm -hmm. a comprehensive critique of neo-atheist nonsense about the Jesus of history, um, mm -hmm. which really tried to do exactly what it says on, on the dust cover, and it, it engaged with and used you know, neo-atheist views on the historical Jesus as a, a launching-off point for investigating. The historical Jesus, and particularly focusing on the on the issue of um, the argument for the resurrection of Jesus, mm. but how how people's philosophical assumptions affect what they would make of that kind of historical investigation of Jesus, and how mm. it would would close them to or open them to that investigation. So dealing with the prior philosophical issues, so that we can we can get at the historical Jesus. Um, historically, what can we we know about? In particular, what data can we establish? that pertains to the resurrection of Jesus and then how do we go about you know arguing what's the best explanation of, of that evidence in, in terms of just you know, standard historical explanatory criteria um, of explaining things mm. thank you thank you very much just a final final question and thank you for everyone who's been participating and putting up questions here uh, uh, where should we look for um, material, uh, maybe on the popular level here, on um, on Dawkins and his uh, atheism? Uh, sure, so there, there, there's plenty of um, YouTube uh, material you can find. I, I, I know that through the, the college uh, there's a version of the Dawkins's discussion with um, John Lennox, who's a, a Christian mathematician and philosopher from Oxford that they had in 2007 and, and you've put Norwegian subtitles uh, to that discussion so that's very accessible uh, for a Norwegian audience uh, to look at um, and and then you you'd find a range of materials at different levels uh, say through through my website at peterswilliams.com um, which will you know tell you about my books and so on but give you access to free um, articles and, and lists of YouTube videos podcasts etc uh, that will lots of them deal with different aspects of, of the neo atheist movement and of Dawkins in particular. And of course, we recommend your your book, uh, the Akron God question mark, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, which is also uh, written for for youth groups, uh, yeah. or, or I mean for for youth. Um, 
So to, to the same sort of, uh, I would say, sort of older teens to undergraduate sort of spread of of, of age groups that Dawkins is aimed his own um, recent book at. Yeah. Hmm. So I think this this was a good opportunity to to um, to make use of a, a very important voice in in the modern modern media and to look critically at it and to open up question and discussion. Hmm about these really big questions that that even Richard Dawkins is addressing yeah. and showing that his both his critique of 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 the Christian uh, uh, faith and Christian ideas are are failing and his his own perspectives are are really both contradictive self contradicting and and problematic yeah so so i think we can encourage uh, people to explore and reflect and use this material uh, for discussion among ourselves and even in schools. And that's why we've written um, a discussion guide to, to the Dawkins and Lennox debate, the Alabama debate. You find it on YouTube. Um, that can that can be kind of a starting point for helping helping people, maybe especially these young young adults you mentioned, uh, helping them analyze the argument and seeing that there are good, very good responses and good critiques to be delivered because those critiques are very seldom heard in in popular culture. Mm. It's a good opportunity for us to um, to uh, be a part of that discussion. Yes, so thank you very much, uh, Peter. Um, and uh, thank you. we thank look forward for to working with you for the future. Yeah. And we recommend that people will come back and listen to tomorrow again, where the lecture will be by Rune Tobiasen. Can we trop a in kritik of secular humanism?